Welcome to Grab Life Big. Grab Life Big. The exclusive podcast for healthy, wealthy, generous men who choose to lead epic life. Or as a few of us say, badass rich guys who do epic shit. And now, your host, that's Hybin. If this is empty, this doesn't matter. That's your home. I'm always home. I'm on tour. Me too. You're doing great, dude. Telling true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Is it my advice to you? I know you think these guys are your friends. If you want to be a true friend to them, be honest and unmerciful. Wrong Tribe Confounds, The Right Tribe Compounds. Get your free copy of the runaway bestseller Tribe of Millionaires at $20 value at tribeofmillionaires.com free. Just pay the shipping. That's tribeofmillionaires.com. All right, Go Bros. Welcome to the Go Bro Room. I got Mr. Jake Harris on the line. Jake, welcome. Thank you, Senor Hyben. How are you today? Good, sir. Listen, let's start by talking about Jake, first of all. Like, if you had to give me a five-minute story of the day Jake was born until now, uh, what would it sound like? Well, I don't think I've, I've described it from the day I was born, but uh, usually, so let's, let's start with uh, where I am today. I am a father and a husband. To an amazing family, and I have a business now, and I, I do private equity real estate, and uh, we are really investing into the urban core of secondary and tertiary markets. And then, so when I peel that back and look at what brought me to where I am today, is exactly that. I was born in Denver, Colorado. My dad was a, a mechanic, and my mom was a, a homemaker. Big Catholic family in Denver, and. Um, Moved to California when I was a couple years old. I don't re recall that or remember that. Uh, my dad and the, the economy was tough. As a mechanic, uh, it was during the kind of oil crisis that was happening. Um, he was a Ford, Lincoln, Mercury mechanic. And Ford, Lincolns, and Mercury's were gas-guzzling American car beast that didn't fare very well. And so they were struggling selling cars, and so my dad looked to, to pivot. He became a police officer, that following in his dad's footsteps. And we grew up not, not having a lot of money, just scraping by. I, I remember kind of about from uh, the mobile home park, and then eventually we bought a really old farmhouse. Um, it was in Newcastle, a farming community outside in the suburbs of Sacramento, and I think the house was built in 1888, and there was a, a concrete stamp in the basement. That was when the railroad had came through, and they stamped that, and this was the, at one point, a thousand-acre orchard in this farmhouse. We rebuilt it. It sat on rocks. It didn't even have a foundation, and completely rebuilt that. So I grew up essentially on a construction site. That, that was a lot of my formidable or things that I remember most vividly was living in a 16-foot camp trailer with no hot water and working or living on a construction site. We, we, we took baths in a, in a wheelbarrow, and I got to build whatever I wanted as long as I used the bent nails. And so I would scour this construction site and take these nails and straighten them out and use scrap wood and, and build stuff from the time I was a little kid until... And that was a several-year project until we moved into that house, and then we grew up in the countryside just running amok. You know, fast forward, my parents got divorced when I was uh, in, in high school. I moved back to Denver for a small period of time, then back to California. Uh, I joined the Army. I did uh, initially, you know, reserve. Then I was went into air assault infantry. 
I spent some time down in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, a little bit in South Carolina and Louisiana and Fort Polk. You know, I really wanted to get into business. I didn't know what that meant. My dad had asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said I wanted to be a businessman. Uh, I got into a retail business, and I did trophies, and I built trophies and did glass etching and plaque salesman of the month, soccer trophies, and retail stores are very cutthroat industry you're a slave to the customer and a soccer mom at the end of the soccer season would uh you know cut your throat out for a nickel you know she wanted <laughs> she wanted she was so done with soccer season by the end of the day, it was just like i just want the nicest trophy for the cheapest price and i want to be done with this and it's all and, your um, you know and how dare you misspell for the, you know, for the John, team that came in last yeah, and you misspelled Johnny's name that's spelled with a Z and, a, and an X, you know, and then you're like, who spells their name with an X, you know, and it's like, you're ruining his life, and you're like, I, oh, man, this business sucks, so uh, from that time, I went back, I finished up college, got a degree, uh, my undergraduate degrees in entrepreneurship, and then ultimately, you know, I'm kind of skipping around a little bit, but then I got a master's degree in international real estate and finance. During that time, I, I really discovered real estate. I read, like many people, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it was like the epiphany and the light bulb moment that it was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. And I started flipping houses in the early 2000s, became a millionaire before 30. Unfortunately, the subprime market corrected me that I was not that smart, uh, <laughs> a, a very uh, aggressive wave, and I was living in Phoenix at the time, and then I watched this multi-million dollar portfolio of houses eviscerate into nothingness, and I remember sitting there, dear Lord, can I please have no money? That would be really awesome, because everything was underwater, and I you know, as I was liquidating the portfolio, I was paying. I'd come to closing tables paying twenty five thousand. Man, that's that's interesting. I want to sit there and think about that. So you you were praying to please be broke even, to be worth nothing. Yes. Wow. So it was. You know, I was over leveraged, like everyone in that time. And as I was, I thought that I could. You know, but the market just kept going down so fast, so fast, and, and more and more. And I ran out of money before I was able to liquidate the portfolio. And so I had the last couple of houses, and I went through. I tried to short sell them. I tried to do deals. Um, ultimately, had a foreclosure on the last couple. And it came to a moment where I just kind of said, I'm not going to try to ride this out. Like, this is, it's time to cut bait. And it, it kind of like this, this kind of piece said, okay, I can rebuild my credit faster than I could servicing this loan for this house that I, you know, owed $800,000 on in Phoenix. And I don't know if this house will ever be worth $800,000 again. I think maybe, maybe now it is, but uh, I'm not exactly sure. I haven't checked back up on that. Got back to doing construction. I, I did commercial construction for a while, estimating superintendent, and then they did a lot of properties for equity office, Sam Zell's company before he sold it to Blackstone. I was just a contractor doing work. Uh, I was 23 and had 130 people working for me. So I got back to you know that, that time of just pounding nails and I'd fix anything that needed to be fixed. And Ultimately, that layered into working with a family office, one high net worth individual that was a home builder. I put together an, an opportunistic distress fund with him, and we um, started flipping a bunch of houses, uh, probably did 700 homes that I put together in single family rental portfolios and just picking up distress. And then I decided to go out on my own. And so that's been the last five years is we are now... Harris Bay, we're a private equity real estate company. We kind of play in a, by definition that, but we kind of, you know, liken ourselves to a new category. There's the mom and pa investor that they're maybe going to invest a, in their local market a couple million bucks, up to a couple million bucks, 100,000, 200,000, a million, two million. And then there's the institutional investors that are looking to deploy 
tens and tens of millions, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. We play in that in-between space. Um, you know, it's kind of like a super investor. Our deal size are typically in the two to 20 million in the urban core of secondary and tertiary markets where we can fit in between these other existing entities and, and make good spreads and good yields. And uh, we use a lot of data to, to determine where we're going to invest that capital. And it's grown. We have about $350 million in projects in our pipeline. We're doing multifamily, office, hotel, adaptive reuse, historic preservation, and having a kick-ass time at it. That's awesome. And is your partner now the same guy that you had mentioned earlier that you started out doing the with no. the, the opportunistic fund? This is somebody different. Okay. Yeah, someone different. So I partnered. My business partner is a wealth manager uh, now. He runs um, an RIA. Um, that's how we sourced a lot of our capital is that he had these. You What's know, an RIA? RIA, Registered Investment Advisor. Okay. Um, so he's got a couple hundred million in assets under management. These are you know, high net worth individuals, small pension funds, and some family offices. And they were primarily all invested into the stock market, you know, stocks and bonds. And he said, you guys need to have some alternative investments. It is unwise to be uh, solely in the stock market. And so since then, we've been, you know, I use my kind of in the trenches experience to find these deals. And then he kind of coordinates that from investor relations and placing capital um, into the funds that we then aggregate and put together. Wow. That's pretty cool. That's an amazing story. A lot of visuals in that, you know, sleeping in a, I'm taking a bath in a uh, wheelbarrow, mm -hmm. making things with the bent nails, man, all, all that stuff. You have, you have a lot of cool visuals in there. One, one of the things I want to kind of dig deep that, that I thought about when you were telling your story was for people that are listening to this or just anybody in general that may hear this that doesn't understand what it was like in 2008, let's say, Whereas, because the market has bounced back so well, some of them might be listening to this thinking, well, shit, Jake, why didn't you just rent the houses out and wait it out? Now, of course, at the time, you know, there, there's an old saying, when things are bad, everyone assumes they're going to get worse. And when things are good, everyone assumes they're going to get better. Was it just that? Or what was it economically where the numbers didn't work? Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah, so I I was in Phoenix. Most in all of my portfolio was in in Phoenix. That market was really the one of the epicenters for the subprime meltdown. It uh, happened there, you know, first and and fastest and most aggressively. And so really it comes down to supply and demand. The market was massively oversupplied. And so there was no demand. There was nobody to even rent it to. You had your, your choice of housing. And many of the houses were in brand new communities on golf courses that had never been lived in. But the market and people from California and other places were buying their second, their third, their fourth, their fifth house. And so when I just looked at that and I looked at what my portfolio was and what was existing in the market was... This is going to get bad, and it's going to be really bad, and it's going to get going, you know, fast. And so, so it was I, sort of a house. It was sort of a house of cards. And oh, uh, absolutely, yes. That these a lot of these houses that you owned were already empty, and you weren't like necessarily buying them to buy and hold. You were buying them to uh, flip a year later or five months later without actually doing any work to them or anything. Uh, some of that. We, we bought some, you know, where there was light remodels to them, but the market was picking up so so quickly. And so we rent them out. The handful of houses that I did had, and that's, that's how kind of I built up, you know, my reserve. I'd flip the house and I'd make 50000 75000 whatever it was, and then I'd go buy two more and fix them up. And then, you know, at time it was like, wow, why am I flipping these? They're going up, you know. Five ten thousand dollars in value a month. Like I should just hold on to more of these, and 
So then I'd rent them out. Some of them had negative cash flow. Some of them maybe break even. But then as the market turned, then rents, you know, fell off and half. And then I'm negative cash flow or have empty houses and nobody's looking to rent. And yeah, so it just, it got really, really bad fast. And I think a lot of investors now can't visualize not being able to rent a buy and hold. Would you agree with that? Yeah. You know, to me, the Kool-Aid that I drank was that, you know, real estate's just going to kind of go up forever and you're going to be able to rent it out forever and you're going to do this. And I remember listening to an interview with uh, Ray Dalio. You uh, haven't read his book, Principles. I, I, I think that is uh, maybe top five, top 10 read that I recommend that everyone go read that book. Uh, one of the things that he talked about is when he was very publicly wrong. Reagan had been uh, elected, and he thought the policies that he was putting into place were going to cause the U.S. economy to, to crash and that we were overexposed to uh, international debt. And so he professionally bet against that and shorted the market. handful of people you know, may realize that was in office, the, the market really took off and it really had a, a big boom in the Reaganomics. And the reason, and, and what I'm, I'm kind of getting to into this is that he said Ray Dalio looked and was making judgments only based on his lifetime of information. That he went Ooh. back and studied, you know, and he said 80 years or 100 years prior to that, a similar cycle had happened and the things that Reagan had put into place created the same effect that the that caused the market to go up. And so to me, it was that, again, like that light bulb moment where it was like, holy shit, am I only investing based on my 10 or 20 years or however many years of experience and knowledge? And so it caused me to go back and then look at every single market, every single cycle in the history of the United States from the time from the tobacco crops and how they speculated on the land value of that and the booms and the bust and the booms and the bust. Ooh. And then what was it that led to that? And what happened is we had kind of a little bit of a perfect storm in the last subprime meltdown. And it was led to oversupply. And it, it really just comes back to Econ 101. What is the supply and demand numbers? Obviously, if people are speculating on future valuations and they're overbuilding product, house, part, you know, office building, whatever, you're going to lead to a correction at some point. And so that 07, 08 was a, a very cataclysmic moment in U.S. history and really globally of overbuilding because it just always goes up. And so we forget those things as no, they have to come and correct. And so, um, it, yeah, I think that's I think that's very true now. With a lot of people out there in the market, they're only basing their decisions based on their life experience. That's really solid. So, based on your life experience and based on what you've read and studied about history, and based on the fact that you have a master's degree, right? in international real estate and finance, where are we now? So I get asked this question a lot. I speak all over the country back and forth, and, and that seems to be the hot topic. You know, what inning of the game are we in? You know, it's um, where are we in the market? So fundamentally speaking, we are unbelievably positioned. The market is undersupplied almost everywhere across the United States. Interest rates are insanely low. There is a lot of policies that are pushing now for more growth. But there's another facet to that is consumer confidence. And your fundamentals can be fantastic, but if the uh, sentiment and the mentality of the consumer moves the other direction, it can then create this Pygmalion effect of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The sky is falling, the sky is falling, and then you get something and then the sky starts falling. And so I look at it is in different asset types, we're in different innings of the game because the market has recovered in different paces. So residential 
multifamily has recovered much more rapidly. And so new product has been brought online. So like multifamily, I think we're very, very late in the cycle. It's hard to find a good deal. The cap rates that a lot of people are trading these these cap rates at on for multifamily are very, very aggressive. And I think there's uh, fundamentally risk into that profile that a lot of multifamily stuff is being traded on. Okay, so I'm going to stop you there, guys. I hope people are listening. So essentially, Jake is bearish. I'm going to put words in your mouth on the multifamily real estate sector. And I'm going to leave it at that. So keep going. Yeah. So it is, you know, there's good deals have been gone, you know, are no longer exist in multifamily. So you either have to do extreme value adds, which you can buy it at a bigger discount. So for instance, we bought a building, a a little multifamily for $1.3 million. We're going to spend $1.5 million on fixing it up. And then it's going to be worth five and a half, you know, five to six million dollars somewhere in there. But it's an extreme, you know, long process to, to do that on a small, you know, type of infill product. Those are the deals that are left. It's very hard to do, very complicated type of multifamily. Where we look at uh, office is much later or much earlier in the, in the cycle because nobody built office. And so as people are moving back to the urban core, more and more employment is being located in these downtown areas and they haven't built new products sometimes in 10, 20, 30 years. And so now as they're building new product, you can buy existing assets at half of the replacement value. So we think there's opportunity still in those different asset classes. Okay, so let me let me slow down again on this. Urban core Office buildings, yes, which is just office. Let's call it Class A office because there, what's left, according to what you said, is a lot of old shit. Building, redeveloping, nice offices in inner cities. That's pretty much yeah. So taking yeah. okay crappy Polish. office building that hasn't seen a remodel in thirty years, mm. you know, beige walls, crappy corridor. And re, you know, doing the modernization, bringing in, you know, fiber to the building, opening up the walls, you know, doing this open concept. And you get something that really society is moving back towards is something authentic and unique. So we can preserve and kind of enhance and then improve connectivity overall in our, our investments. And I think that is, you know, proving out is, Suburbia is doing fine, but with the commoditization of retail, is you're seeing them not uh, perform as well long term because they're competing with Amazon. So if you're selling retail, anything that competes with Amazon, I think you're a loser long term. Okay. But, you know, if you are doing something that creates that you can't buy on the internet. So Pat and I, you know, we can order a haircut on the internet because it comes in the, the form of a razor. Dollar Shave Club, yeah. Exactly, but everyone else that actually has to go to a hairstylist to get their hair trimmed, you can't order that on Amazon. And mm. so we look at this as there's the markets are kind of splitting, and then that happens with people. And with the urban floors now having this, this urban renaissance, we see those you know portions of the market better positioned for long-term growth. And so that's kind of where we're investing is the economy is going to do what it's going to do. I think the, the politics in the next election kind of also determines where things lead. I think if, if the Democrats are to win the next election, you'll likely see the corporate tax rate get repealed and rolled back, which will hurt the stock market. And we'll see probably a 10 to 20% correction in the stock market uh, when that happens. I personally believe that a lot of people will take their money out of the stock market and then redeploy it into real estate. The wrong tribe confounds, the right tribe compounds. 
Get your free copy of the runaway bestseller Tribe of Millionaires at $20 value at tribeofmillionaires.com free. Just pay the shipping. That's tribeofmillionaires.com. Real estate and the stock market have only correlated once in the last 21 bear, you know, bull market cycles. And the only time they did correlate was in the 07, 08 kind of collapse. And that was led because real estate collapsed in, you know, the almost entire financial world at the time. And so when we look at that is I think there's going to be at some point a stock market correction. When that stock market corrects, there's going to be a flight to safety of capital. They're going to pile into real estate, which is going to lead to an overheating of the real estate market and an oversupply. And then we're going to have later a correction. Undersupply. Oversupply. So first, it's going to go from we're undersupplied right now today, primarily. There's going to be a stock market correction. Right. So People take the money out. Put, yeah, and there's like, hey, where am I going to get return? They're going to look at crowdfunding sites. They're going to look at Fundrise and Realty Mogul and every other you know syndicator that's running around chasing deals, and they're going to redeploy a bunch of money into real estate. Sort of like uh, what we were talking about before in 2008 where you had people buying real estate for little or no returns, just like your real estate, which had no return. And sure. uh, or negative returns, but you still bought it anyways, right? Because yeah. in your mind, guaranteed to go up in value, and rents were guaranteed to go up or, or stay the same. So we don't see that right now in the market, but I say that's the leading indicator mm. of when we're getting closer to the end of the cycle. Is mm. So when there's Dr. Bob that has no idea what the hell he's doing. But he's like, I have to get in now because the market's just moving so fast that my my friend, you know, he just made 12% last year on this deal or 15% or whatever, and I just need to get in. And so they throw money at syndicators or crowdfunding or whatever, and then it leads to an oversupply. And it, it, well, that's, like, that's interesting because I kind of feel like that's where we're at now. But, but as, on, on some level, you're, you're right because... It depends. Yeah. Like, you know, so I'm blessed that I get to do projects and look at a lot of cities. You know, so we have some stuff in Cincinnati and Detroit and you know San Antonio and Sacramento and, and these different markets. And so you go travel around the country, and I look at these. And again, I'm using data to determine where and what I'm looking for. You go there and you're like, it's it's not there yet. Like it's not California. It's not the coast. It starts on the coast. It starts in the west coast and the east coast, and it feels like everything is you know at this frenzy. And then you go in the middle of America and you're like, it's not a frenzy. Like some of these people are still waiting for this to happen and recover. And obviously, we look at things. We've been doing some stuff in the opportunity Ooh. zone space. Part of that is it's an unbelievable tax program for people that have capital gains to avoid or defer and reduce their taxes and then avoid future taxes meant to deploy economic development to, to middle of America. And, you know, other, you know, they say low income distressed areas, but some of them are not necessarily low income or distressed. Our thing is trying to find that that arbitrage of where is it not and where is more the, more of a rural play than a, a city play. Well, not really, because downtown <coughs> Portland is an opportunity zone. East Austin, all of downtown San Antonio, parts of Sacramento, most of downtown Cincinnati. You know, for where you are, Baltimore. You know, there's large portions of, of Baltimore that are in opportunity zones. This is also, if you peel that back, based on 2010 census data tract information. Yeah. You know, the world is vastly different than 2010. Yeah. Well, what, what percentage of opportunity zone developments? Let's say we look back on this 20 years. You're trying to make a guess. What? Sure. What percentage of opportunity zone developments do you think in 20 years will be looked on and been like, that was forced gentrification and it never happened? 
I don't, I don't know exactly what you mean. It, well, gentrification, it, like gentrification is an organic process, right? You sure. Generally, what happens is you have, you, you know, these really shitty areas and the artists and the gays move into the areas and they take a lot of risk and they're like, you know, this is a bad neighborhood, but we're going to move in there. And then the money starts coming in and then, and then people start developing and then they start knocking down things and building up. Uh, you know, apartments, right? I mean, it, it happens over and over again, right? So, um, and, and it's like a 10-year, 20-year gig that you watch all this happen organically, like it was supposed to happen, just like a, you know, and, and now with Opportunity Zones, I feel like, okay, the government says this is an Opportunity Zone. We're going to take a vacant uh, apartment building that hasn't been occupied for 20 years and has mold all in it and don't, dead, I'm exaggerating, dead bodies of dope beans in the basement, and you're going to put a high-rise for millennials there, and you're going to say, we build it, they will come. How much of that do you think is, is actually just not going to work because it wasn't organic? So the way I describe this is the opportunity zones don't make a bad deal good, but they can make a good deal fantastic. And so when you look at that is it's just kind of multiplying what it is as far as so if you're like, look, this is a one or two or three percent deal, you know, it just doesn't magically become a good deal. The, the economics still have to work. The viability of the project has to work, especially and I believe we're really in the infancy stage of opportunity zones. Now, five years or 10 years down the road. You know, as people just think, oh, we're going to throw money at that and, you know, a lot of those are going to pan out, I think that's a, a risk that's coming down the pipeline, again, like when the, in the oversupply of the market. Currently, I'm not seeing anything other than the land value uh, appreciate at a little bit higher value. And some markets, and, and to me, it's as I've dug into this more, Markets that have tax credit attorneys and are heavy into the tax credit world are the markets that are kind of the early movers in this space because it's the same muscle memory of doing a historic tax credit or new market tax credit or something that is like very similar in the mechanisms of it. Markets that don't have a whole lot of tax credit attorneys, there's no premium right now for opportunity zones. And so we're going through and like, let's go buy some of these because there's a good deal that we can get in and they don't realize what they actually are sitting on yet. And, you know, we're, again, while playing in between those institutional, the mom pa investor to the institutional, the institutional investors are where we're going to ultimately exit out to. And so we're looking for things of markets that they're going to be in in three years or five years or 10 years. It's hard to predict, you know, actual times of when people will move into that. And technology is, can extend or accelerate those cycles. The more advanced we are and, and, and the Fed's doing things that has, they've never done before. And the president is different and, and stimulating things and differently. So I don't see it creating empty buildings or high rises or anything in any market yet. But again, that's we're 18 months, you know, into actually understanding what opportunities and really only a year and uh, others is maybe four months into the clarity of what is an opportunity zone and what makes sense. I don't know what it looks like in five years. Yeah. Well, I mean, in five years, I mean, in five years, you won't be doing any new ones because it'll be 60 percent of the way through the through the tax benefit. But but whether or not they all play out will be interesting and I think the safer bet is just like you said you know go into areas that have already started the organic process like East Austin where it's already started to gentrify and uh, they're looking at 2010 census so it, at that point it was a terrible area so alright let's uh, this has been incredible um, and uh, normally we don't like go down a, a rabbit hole so much on investing so I want to jump and just switch gears. If you don't mind, Jake, let's talk about your health a little bit. Um, how much do you weigh? Uh, 181. And what do you want to weigh? I'm actually at my, my weight. Um, I'm actually now 
amending that. I, I dropped down to 175 just before my vacation. I'm actually working on now body fat as far as I want to have a certain body fat. It's not necessarily the weight and, and the makeup of that. I ha- so what, what are you doing about uh, curbing or, or changing your body fat? So What's your so process? I work out every day, and I do intermittent fasting, and it's more of not just a – it's kind of who, who I am now. I, I work out every day. I get up 5.30 in the morning. I go for a run, and I do uh, lunges. I do a lot of walking lunges. And then I don't usually eat until after 12 o'clock. And that's, you know, 12 to 8, 12 to 7. And uh, I primarily eat, you know, salad, you know, meat and veggies is is kind of primarily more kind of that uh, ketogenic type diet. And then, uh, you know, when I feel like it, I have, uh, you know, my cheat days or go in. I have breakfast with my boys on, on Saturday. We go out and have breakfast and, you know, usually I... Uh, eat what I want on that day, and I'm just maintaining. And so it's now how do so I? So talk to me about better. Talk to me about the weight loss versus the body fat, or it may be the same thing. But I've been doing intermittent fasting now. This is my second week, so okay. I just started. Haven't lost any weight. Uh, haven't you know? I'm not eating between uh, 8 p.m. and noon, and it, it's first day was interesting, but it doesn't even bother me anymore. As someone said to me the other day, actually, David Osborne said to me the other day, for whatever reason, it reduces your body fat faster than it reduces your weight or something to that degree. I mean, do, what, can you explain that? Like, uh, how does it help your body fat, but not at the same time reduce weight? You know, I'm not into the the nuances of how science, and yeah. why it works the science of it i just know it kind of works um i have plenty of energy you know i i've been actually probably a year year and a half now you know kind of eating this this way you know it, it was so just by itself i was not really losing the weight and it was actually at about the summertime so with my i don't remember if it was in austin or you know what uh what it was but i was kind of basically it was actually just before austin i realized that i was just bullshitting myself i kept saying i was going to weigh 175 i was going to hit this goal weight and it you know it was my goal from from breckenridge that i was going to do this while i was eating you know fairly well it was just i was maintaining and so that's where i just got into is i'm better being binary is so I just said, okay, I'm going to work out every single day until I hit my goal weight. And the problem was I hit my goal weight and then I was like, okay, now what? And so, and actually the, the book Atomic Habits by James Clear was kind of one of the things. Atomic that, Habits. Okay. Atomic Habits by James Clear was it's goals are great if you want success one time. But systems are for continued and repeated success. And so it was changing your identity. And for me, it was changing my identity. Is like, I'm someone that works out every day. <laughs> and so part of that was, okay, then it's not, do I work out Monday, Wednesday, Friday? Do I work? And part of the thing is, I don't know what day it is ever. Uh, fortunately, I, I live a very blessed <laughs> life. Like, I feel like Groundhog Day. I don't know what day it is. Holidays sneak up on me, and I'm like, why is nobody here? What's going on? And they're like, it's Thanksgiving, you dick. I guess you know? that's and I'm good like, and bad, oh, right? Sorry. Like, I, I don't know what day it is. Where's your presents? Where's my presents, Dad? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know what's going on. If it's not uh, days, calendars, things pop up on my phone, says I got a call today. I got a whatever today. I respond to that. That's awesome. All right, so let's let's switch, switch back to uh, personal finances. What percentager are you? You know, uh, I think I'm – I don't remember what that calculation was exactly. Well, it's just like how much are your, how much are your monthly expenses yeah, like for so just I'm, you and your family only, not your business? Yeah, so I know me and my family, and I, I want to say it's 150%, um, 125, 150, somewhere right. um, in there. 
part of that is because I have, you know, as I told you earlier, I, I got um, my ass kicked, you know, in, in the 07, 08 collapse. And so I was very, very selective and I live a very simple kind of uh, existence. So I, I don't have a whole lot of bills. You know, we have almost everything paid off. And so what are they, you think? 2500 a month. What? I don't believe yeah. you. Yeah, that's I don't, I don't believe it. So, and that's part of the thing. It's like people are like, <laughs> like you people like, shit. I don't believe I mean, there's a lot of people that, that I know their taxes on their house are 20 <laughs> What? What? Like, okay, so you, I understand. A, you so pay. $1,000 a month is my house. All in. Everything. All in. And then the, the rest is food, yeah. clothes. Yeah, food, clothes, you know. Um, you have three boys? I got two boys. Two um, boys? Five and almost two. Oh, well, that's why. I haven't started asking you for all the newest high-top <laughs> sneakers true. yet. That's, that Video is games and everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> you know, my biggest thing is fortunately in the last couple of years, I've had some some cost segregation, depreciation things I've been able to advance over. So I've had a very low tax um, oh, yeah, last it. year had no taxes that I had to, to pay on that. And so that's obviously helped with that percentage. And so it's kind of a little bit what I'm projecting, what I'm going to have to pay and, and not. So, you know, I only owe like a hundred and something thousand on our house, but we have a 30 year fixed at 3% or three and an eighth mortgage payments, 900 bucks a month, you know, 800 bucks a month add in taxes and, and insurance and other things. It's, mm -hmm. it's very cheap paid off cars, Cell phones paid through the, the the company, the business. So it's just, you know, yeah. pretty chill. Like, and then I like being, I like hanging out at home. I like hanging out with my family. I like hang, the boys. And I, I, uh, I think that helps a lot too. You know what I mean? Like, like you could spend. And I was my my kids are are twenty three and twenty five, and I was trying to have this conversation with my daughter, not for time, that you know, going out to eat every damn night is very expensive, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, not staying home is, is a frugal way to, to live. So, yeah, yeah we absolutely. do. We live it up on things like, so we take every year, um, so my wife and I sat down and we, we want to take our boys to a new country every year. Mm. And so I'll go spend $10,000, $20,000 on a trip each year you know, that we go out. And so this year we did Spain and Portugal. We went and flew into Barcelona, went through the south of Spain to Sevilla, Valencia and Madrid, and then down the coast of, of uh, Portugal from Porto, drove down the course, uh, coast and then to Lisbon and then, and then back. But I just kind of planned those things out. And, and you saw Nick Waldner while you were I did. It's crazy. How, the, how does that happen? That is so... I was touring hotels because we're building a hotel on the Riverwalk in San Antonio. And so I was, you know, I touring a, a bunch of different hotels all, along this trip as I was, I was in, you know, Spain and, and Portugal. And so I was touring one of the hotels, a sister property with the manager, and they were showing me, here's this and here's our dining room and looking at the river. And I looked down and I'm like, hey, I know you. And he's like, hey, I know you. And it was like, you're GoBundance. And he's like, yeah. And we connected up in Steamboat a couple of years ago, just before his, his son was born. And so now he's sitting there with his, his son, Jack, and uh, his wife, Emily. And it was like, what are you doing here? And so he, he had a crazy <laughs> story. If you haven't heard what he was doing in Portugal, super crazy. And I'll, I'll give you the snippet of it. In, in yeah, because I, I don't know. Yeah. So he was speaking for KW. So the guy oh, that okay. owned KW Portugal brought him over, and that was one of his his le his goals. He said, "I want to yeah. speak internationally." Okay, yeah, I saw him post that. Yeah, and I want to go with my family. He's like, "Well, here's the crazy thing about that story is so they paid for this couple week trip for for Nick and his family to come out there, and so he shows up, and it's this two day event, and he's like." So what time do I go on uh, on this two-day event, you know, or two-and-a-half-day event? And they're like, what do you mean? And he's like, yeah, like, do I go on before launch or after launch? Am I on the first day or the second day? And they said, no, you, you're the guy. You're it. 
Nobody else is speaking. Here's the mic. Ready, go. You have two and a half days. And so he goes, oh, my gosh. Like, I am not prepared for two and a half days worth of presentations and meetings. Like, oh, shit. And so just on the fly, he, uh, you know, said, okay, I've talked about a handful of different topics in different areas and created and said, I need a whiteboard. I don't have anything prepared for this. And then just like, let's go. And so we caught him on the second portion of that trip where he had already done that and was traveling and exploring around. So my, my family and I connected up with him and his family and we had dinner in uh, Porto and ran around and ate some, some ice cream in the streets and just uh, explored a city together. And that's kind of the power of go abundance. That's anywhere in the world. You can probably randomly run into somebody. It, it is so true, man. I mean, it, it's, I can't tell you the amount of times that I've ran into someone random that I've known, you know, in Mexico or somewhere like that. It's just so weird. And to the point now where I'll see people and I'll go like, think that that's Jake, but maybe it's not. Maybe I should say something to him. Nah, I've had a beer. You know, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm it's definitely not him. He's too young. Well, then I'll watch him. Oh, no, that could be him. I, I did that recently. I was uh, my I took my daughter's hiking in Zion, and um, we stayed at this totally random uh, campground with a bunch of yurts. It was like a hundred of these yurts. They're like tents with no air conditioning, nothing. And um, I, I said, we got to get up early because there's lines here. We want to make, we're going to do this hike. You know, it's an all-day gig. So we got up at 5 a.m. I go into the men's bathroom, shared bathrooms, right? These bathrooms for all these yurts. And I'm brushing my teeth, and this guy comes in. He's brushing his teeth next to me. I'm looking at him. I'm like, that looks like Zach. And I'm like, nah, what would he be doing here? Looking at him, nah, and I'm talking myself out of it. I'm talking myself <laughs> out of it. And right before I left, I go, uh, is your name Zach? He's like, yeah, Pat. <laughs> and this is a guy that I was in business with about 10 years ago for a short period of time. It lasted like two years. The business didn't do well. We split up honorably. I never saw him again, actually. I had only actually met him face-to-face like one time and uh, in life. And this was the second time meeting him. But I just knew his face because he's, you know, unique looking and uh, and. And it was just so weird. I came from the bathroom and I said, girls, I just saw somebody I knew in the middle of the mountains in Zion, Utah, you know, brushing his teeth out of sink. Only two people in the bathroom. I was like, this this is so weird when that happens. It is. The world is is really a small space, you know, and it is it is crazy. The more that you kind of realize that, you know, I, I believe it's. Kind of like that, um, you know, you, you buy a new car, go go buy a new, you know, whatever, Toyota truck, and you were like, wow, look, it's this super unique truck, and then you start driving around, you see everybody with that Toyota truck everywhere, you know, and it's like, man, uh, I didn't realize it. Well, it's always existed there, but now you're kind of open to it, and your mind is seeing that, and I think it's the same thing with people, and I'm glad I said something to Nick because I think it, it connected the <laughs> yeah, thing. And that, it's just like, like, that looks like Nick Wall. Yeah, I was like, I'm there, but it's probably not. Yeah, I think I, maybe that's – I did the same thing. I was like, <laughs> I think I know you. Like, do I don't want to embarrass you. What are you doing yeah, here? Yeah. yeah, that just – we just had a GoBundance meetup in Maryland, and uh, we toured a, a, a medical marijuana dispenser that I invested in, and the majority of it, the lion's share of it, came with us and, and did Q&A for two hours for mm-hmm. like 15 GoBros. And Mark Swagger, one of the GoBros, you know, went home that night. The next morning, he's pumping gas. And there's that guy pumping gas next to her, the owner that we just interviewed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he told me, he's like, hey, I saw Mitch this morning. You know, <laughs> I would have never noticed if I hadn't met him last night, you know. And here they are. They live in the same area. They live in the same zip code. So they'll probably see each other again this weekend, you know, so. Yeah, at the grocery store. But anyways, uh, absolutely. So let's wrap this up with uh, one a question about Jake. Jake, what would you say your superpower is? And then I'm going to ask you what your kryptonite is. 
Well, so my superpower is I've been able to identify patterns and opportunities that I, I can see things, you know, I'm obsessed with due diligence and, and digging into details and it is just kind of who I am. I, I have this this thing that God gave me this certain gift and I, I can spend time digging through uh, information, census data tract information, things like that, and start spotting patterns. And that works really well for investing and then putting into there. I think my, my kryptonite is the same thing. It's the flip duality of that is I see how everything can work out is I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I see there's risk. I see, but I see the positives of where everyone else sees the negative. I see the positive. Well, like with things, it doesn't always work out to the positive, And so it's also <laughs> my kryptonite. Uh, and so I have to put into place things that are not the what I, it's more of like what I don't know. And how can I create and surround myself with those people that are the black clouds that are punching holes into it and making me think of things and, and that I don't normally think about. And so as we've expanded our company and, and brought into more people is, is not that I need to get better at those things, but building a system that protects me from myself. So being an entrepreneur, seeing opportunity is, is a blessing and a curse. That's awesome. That's a great answer. I, I suffer from the same thing too. You know, and you really don't know until you're going to be 95 years old and you and your wife are sitting back on your front porch of your mobile home or whatever. Some little kid asks you, you know, where were you dead right? Where were you dead wrong? <laughs> and, you know, but, you, but it, I think you win the game if you're right a significant more times or maybe just even a little bit more than you're wrong. Because it, it is hard to know it all and catch it all. Yeah, and it's just you know about protecting. You know, obviously, I've I've been doing you know professional investing for you know close to twenty years now, and you know I'm mostly right. And so some of these things where it's just like you don't know, like and I was like, you need to be buying these condos in Vegas right now. Like you can't build them for this. This these are going to come back at some point and. Uh, this land deal or whatever it was. And so now lining up, and I think part of it is trusting myself. Um, I was looking earlier for validation from others. And now it's, I've done enough deals where it's like, no, like, and you're never going to be a hundred percent on anything. Like even I tell my wife, I was like, I wasn't a hundred percent sure that we were going to get married. We we're going to do, but I was like, I'm mostly there. And if, if I were waiting till I was a hundred percent sure on everything, you would never invest into anything. You would never invest right. into the, you just kind of have to get to it. It's more than this. And I go that direction and 90% of the time I'm right. And then how do I protect on that 10% that I'm not right? Awesome. Good answer. Jake, thanks for taking time on your busy day today. I appreciate you sharing. Awesome. I'm glad I was able to share and uh, look forward to connecting up uh, in Aspen. In life, to be honest, I failed as much as I've succeeded. But I love my wife. I love my life. And I wish you my kind of success. Don't step to me, bitch. Now you can